North American songwriter, we had the opportunity to talk to Tracy Bonham over Zoom video. I'm sure you know Tracy Bonham for her massive hit in the 90s, Mother Mother, which was up for two Grammy Awards, a video music award. But she talks about her whole journey in music, being born and raised in Eugene, Oregon, her mother being a music teacher. Her grandfather was also a musician. She talks about learning violin, getting into USC, a crazy story about getting into USC, also moving to Boston, getting into the Berkeley School of Music for voice, not even continuing with the violin career. She talks about how early on she wrote Mother Mother in her songwriting career and how it just absolutely exploded. She tells a really funny story about her first EP and how that was kind of spun as her first EP when, in, in fact, it kind of wasn't. She takes us through her entire musical journey, opening up for Blue Man Group, pressing a thousand copies of her record, hoping to sell 500, and she ends up selling like over 12,000 of them. She was able to sing on an Aerosmith record. She tells us about that, some funny uh, stories from her time hanging out with Steven Tyler and Aerosmith, all the way up until the pandemic hitting, where she was, and how the pandemic led her to focus more on her music house, Melodian Music House, which she shares her passion for music, music theory, and teaches it to children. And she calls it, it's music that teaches kids music, which I love. And she talks about her, her record associated, her brand new album, Young Maestros Volume 1. You can watch our interview with Tracy Bonham on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. It'd be rad if you subscribe to us on YouTube and uh, hook us up with a like on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bringing Back Pod. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Tracy Bonham. So our podcast is about you, your journey in music. Um, and we'll talk about uh, your your new record coming out and the Melodian Music uh, House and everything else have, you have going on. Okay. Sounds great. That, if that's cool with you. Yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. So first of all, where were you, talk to me about where you were born and raised. Oh, wow. Well, it all started. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was born and raised in Eugene, Oregon. Oh, okay. I'm wearing an uh, Oregon uh, sweatshirt here. Oh, so, very cool. Very proud to be from the Pacific Northwest. Um, yeah, and uh, that was a while ago. Yes. Well, yeah. that's awesome. Um, born and raised, Eugene, yeah. Oregon, and yeah. talk to me about how you got into music. Okay. Um, so, you know, my mom uh, is a musician and a music educator. My oh, grandpa. Awesome. Uh, was a he's an interesting guy. He was a deputy sheriff, but also a, a musician, and he played Dixieland. and And there was music in the house all the time, uh, whether it was like vinyls, um, you know, playing on the record player, or everybody harmonizing. So I think for me, it was just kind of a done deal. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up without a, a dad for the first seven years of my life. My father passed uh, oh, before wow. I was two, and <laughs> it sounds like therapy already. Um, but the reason why I mentioned that is because I think my mom and I like seriously bonded with music. Like that was sure. our connector. And I think, um, that is something that I carry with me, uh, always now. And she's, she's still around and we always talk about music and we always talk about music education. I love that. So yeah. she's a music teacher as well. Yes, absolutely. And what did she play? 
you don't mind me asking. Yeah, it's okay. She's she's a beautiful singer. Um, she also accompanied herself on the guitar and she played piano too. So okay. very talented. She, um, yeah, she was doing that from an early age too. I guess it was probably because of my grandpa. Okay. And, he, and your grandpa also was a musician as well. Did he yeah. teach it or is he just? Uh, no, he was self-taught and um, just totally went by ear. Very, very talented, but really um, had no no schooling, no training at all. Wow. Wow, wow. wow. So I did read that you, I mean, you started singing at a very early age, but violin has been a big part of your, your musical journey. What made you get into violin? Like, or, and was that the first instrument you learned aside from singing? I think I learned the very basics on guitar before. Oh, okay. And then I did, I did take piano lessons earlier, like maybe at seven, but um, I found a violin in the attic and I brought it down and I was like, mom, you know, whose is this and can I have it? And turns out it was my older sisters. She'd like pretended to lose it. Oh, <laughs> where did it go? <laughs> I can't practice. I can't go to lessons anymore because I lost my violin. Sure. Of course, I was like the little snotty tattletale, you know. So I got to, I get to play the violin. You know, obviously I wanted to do it. So my mom enrolled me in lessons right away. And, and so back to Eugene, Oregon, luckily I was growing up in a place that had a very rich um, culture for arts that had the University of Oregon, sure. also Eugene Symphony, and there's just like so many amazing uh, teachers and musicians and artists in that in that community. Mm -hmm. How many instruments did mom play? Did she teach you how to play violin? No, she did not. Although she was a substitute teacher for strings. God love her. I don't even know how <laughs> anyone would substitute teach anything, but let alone like music. Music, and, sure. Yeah, oh God, terrible. So she did not teach me how to play violin, but it was just inherent. Like she, she taught me some stuff on the piano and on the guitar and how to sing. So I already had developed the ear for it. And okay. then once I got into lessons, it just was like, you know, very quick. Very quick, very quick. Did you play in the school orchestra? And, and I know you got a scholarship to, to USC for, for violin. But were you in like the middle school? Like, did, did you just jump through the entire kind of process of, of school band? Yeah, I mean, again, so lucky to have lived when I lived and where I lived. Because um, in third grade, there was already a string, like an all district string um, orchestra. Oh, and wow. So I would play every week and there were, you know, teachers everywhere. Like I, my first private teacher was also a cheerleader. She was like violin teacher and cheerleader. Sometimes she's <laughs> teaching in her like cheerleader Cheer outfit. <laughs> wow. You're like superwoman. Um, sure. But yes. And then, and then Eugene also has um, and still has, cause it's like 85 years of this. They still have the Eugene youth symphony and Eugene junior symphony before that. So wow. I grew up just totally immersed. And there was also smaller chamber music opportunities. And in junior high and high school, I had these amazing teachers that were teaching string ensemble. And it was just, I, I was in heaven. I loved it there. Mm -hmm. Did you, when did you start writing music? Were you, is it around the same age or did yeah. that come till later? I waited and waited and waited. And um, I really didn't seriously start writing songs until I was in my like 20s. Oh, wow. So when things happened for me in my debut album, I hadn't mm -hmm. been writing that long. So it was like a little bit of a quick study. And I felt really like, whoa, 
Sure. <laughs> that was really intimidating. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, so how, you get into USC and was that based off of what you were doing in high school? Like how, how did that uh, scholarship happen? Oh, I love, I love these questions. Um, <laughs> so I have kind of a funny story. Like I'd been, I'd been studying and practicing a lot. Like I was very devoted. I knew I was going to be a musician of some kind, but classical music was still kind of not my, like, I just felt like it was so confining, right? So you have mm -hmm. to play it this way. And I was always more emotive and my, my marks in, in, um, in school were always like great emotion technique, maybe not so much. Anyway, um, I'll just tell you this little story because I, I like to tell how it, the turn of events happened. Um, I would I, love to hear it. <laughs> Thank you so much for for sharing. <laughs> uh, I went to a prestigious music camp in the summer called Interlochen. Okay. Academy of the Arts. And it's also a, a, an academy for like um, all the year school, but I went for the summer camp and it was really expensive. And I went on the violin and I practiced hard and it was just before my senior year. And I was also... 17. So Interlochen has really strict rules. Like mm -hmm. you got to sign a contract to like, I will, you know, follow all these rules. And oh, I wow. was so into rules. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little bit of a rebellious streak, a little fire. And so even though I was like doing really well, practicing eight hours a day, getting up at five, practicing and loving it, I made a mistake and I got caught smoking a cigarette with some of the university girls. Uh-oh. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I think they, I was tipped off. I think somebody, you know, uh, told on us. But somebody tattled on you? Yeah, they tattled. And Interlochen is really known for its strictness, and it doesn't give you any um, passes. So I got sent home after <laughs> three weeks, and it was supposed to be eight weeks. It was supposed to be like a two-month camp. I got sent home after three weeks, and I was devastated oh my gosh and i have to say they were so mean they even like grounded me for two days while they could try to find a flight for me to get out like they grounded me to my cabin it was i thought pretty terrible sure yeah. for smoking a cigarette at age 17 i mean i get it though like i had to come to terms with it i broke their rules sure for years you know they'd send me these letters like hey you know it's time for summer camp have you thought about joining and i would always be like never <laughs> right right and i have this 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 realization though that that I, I mean i was devastated i was embarrassed i was uh like so upset that i practiced four hours a day for that the rest of the summer like i'm like i'm gonna show them and i practiced <laughs> instead of eight instead of eight you cut it down to four yeah. <laughs> okay Right. So, um, okay. Eight made my bit of exaggeration. Okay. Uh, so I did four hours a day and that I think is what got me the scholarship. Like I, when I auditioned for, um, USC, I think my playing had improved so much because of that. I mean, I don't know if I would have gotten in if I hadn't really practiced like that. Uh -huh. um, I also won this, you know, second place in the state solo competition and I all, I really have you uh, interlocking to think because it really just lit a fire under my ass. Like I sure. show these people that I'm not what they think I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you ever like, <laughs> I would have just, first of all, USC obviously didn't like, they weren't like flipping through your, your paperwork and they're like, Oh, you, were you caught smoking a cigarette at 17? <laughs> Definitely not. 
Not only that, like I would send them the, the letter of like your scholarship, like, oh, hey, remember when you kicked me out? I know. <laughs> I do have a little bit of retribution now, um, not just because like I became a star one day, but I right. invited last summer or the summer pre-COVID to come to Interlochen, not for strings, but to teach a songwriting course. Uh, and so I went back to the campus for the first time in whatever, how many years that was. And I walked around and I was just like, see, I'm, I'm teaching here now. Like you, and nobody from that era was even there, but I just walked around and I kind of made peace with the place. I was like, okay. You know, like I was dumb, but here I am. And sure. It would have been awesome if you just rolled in smoking a cigarette. You're like, what's up? <laughs> for the teachers they make it you know like at one point i thought i had to wear a uniform like when i was teaching there because they're really you know they got their rules uh-huh but it's for whatever reason is i'm sure. not sure maybe yeah. it's like uh yeah just like a discipline type yeah. thing yeah discipline thing <laughs> <laughs> so you go to usc and you go in as a violin player what was that like well um, my violinist, my violin teacher was Alice Schoenfeld of the Schoenfeld sisters. And she was like 140 years old and she was <laughs> Austrian and, uh, I loved her, but she did tell me, she's like, thank God you play the violin the way you do, because your SAT scores were so bad <laughs> that you wouldn't have, you know, like, this is your saving grace. And so mm-hmm. I, I, you know, that was cool. I, it was hard to be in LA, you know, cause that's a weird part of town. I don't know if you know, like it's, um. Yeah, I'm from Southern California. Oh, I, I get it. <laughs> so I lived off campus and that was weird. And uh-huh. I, you know, I was young again. Like, I feel like um, if I could do everything over again, I would take things more seriously. So I, I mean, they also call it what the University of Spoiled Children. And I oh. mix with those people, but I, I kind of partied a little bit. So I wasn't you know, I'd go to my lessons hungover. Um, some of my best lessons actually were, were when I was hungover, but <laughs> I didn't take it as seriously. I feel I regret, you know, that a little bit. And then, you know, I realized like, wow, I don't want to be a symphony player. I, I, um, I love playing the violin. Uh-huh. I don't have, I'm not good enough to become a soloist. And so I'm going to be sitting in the back of the second violin section in some like symphony somewhere and I knew what that meant. That meant like playing the same pieces over and over again and not really having that, you know, I wanted flash. I, mm-hmm. I was a singer as well. And I just felt like, you know what? I've got more of a fire in me. And I think singing is where I can express that fire. Mm-hmm. Then I transferred to Berklee College of Music to go Which to is... jazz. Well, okay. So you didn't even go there for violin. No, I, I continued to play a little bit, but uh-huh. it, um, it eventually became more of a, like a, a secondary thing. And I was, I wanted to sing. Were you always still singing? Like, I mean, throughout the years, like, or was it mainly focused? I'm sure your main focus at the point at that time was violin, but was, were you in the choir, a chorus or were you ever, I mean, were you? Oh, yeah. Like again, okay. you had so many opportunities and in, in junior high and high school, we had like vocal jazz. I mean, mm-hmm. It, we had some quality, I might be biased, but I do feel like there was some really quality teachers and um, these, you know, we would win these championships and stuff, but I learned so much about singing through these teachers and experiences. And um, so I was singing the whole time. 
I didn't really want to take classical voice lessons because again, that felt too like confining. Mm-hmm. But like for me, my freedom in singing was just kind of, you know, it was a little unwieldy and mm-hmm. I don't ever know if I learned how to sing properly with the technique, but I, that wasn't my interest. I wanted to just, I don't know, um, kind of share my, whatever, my message with my voice. So sure. Berkeley became a place like I was dabbling in jazz. I wanted to scat sing and stuff, but then I, then I started looking at other ways of other um, kinds of music. Was that the music that you were into, like growing up or? Yeah. Okay. I liked all music. My mom, again, she had a such a wide uh, taste. You know, we would listen to Stevie Wonder and then, um, uh, you know, vocal jazz groups uh, and then classical and gospel. So it was like a, a really great um, kind of education to, to, I just loved all music. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I know you did like a, a few years later down the line, you ended up covering like a, a Zeppelin song, which is pretty, uh, I mean, the cover is awesome, but I wasn't sure if you kind of had, came from that realm, but you were also just so good at violin, but it sounds like you were pretty, I mean, your, your spectrum of music was massive at the time anyway. I think I was a sponge and yeah. I also had these little inner inside jokes. So I think doing a Zeppelin song on the violin for me was an inside joke. It was like, not only <laughs> do people think I'm John Bonham's daughter, but- Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, why not just spread that rumor further? Um, That's amazing. But also like, hey, the violin doesn't normally fit in this kind of genre. Well, let's make it fit, you know? And mm-hmm. I like being ironic like that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. When you uh, transferred to, to Berkeley, was there another like kind of audition process to get in? And like, how does- how do you approach them and say, yeah, I've been, you know, playing violin forever. I've done this like, well, I got a full ride to USC. Yeah. I want to be a singer. <laughs> well, that was a long time ago. I think things are different now, but the, the, um, the process to get into Berkeley was like nothing. Like I, oh. I think I may have sent a demo tape and then they were like, okay, cool. And then they gave me a small scholarship but they admitted me. I didn't, I don't even think I had to um, audition. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I've, I've heard to- like, it's, it's interesting to me because I'll speak to t- people, a lot of people that have went to Berkeley and it's either, yeah, I sent a demo tape and they let me in or it was like, they didn't even like l- ask. It was like, they just let me in or it was like, oh, I had a you note know, sight read on the spot. I had to do this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. So it's, it's just like, it seems like they're, <laughs> Their their entry process has kind of been up and down throughout the years. I think so. I mean, I, I wonder, I hope it's better now, but when I was there, it just, it seemed, I guess I didn't roll with the right crowd, but I felt like a lot of people were just learning their instruments. You know, it was mm-hmm. felt like a trade school. It, it I wasn't um, feeling like it was challenging at all. Okay. And while there, that's when you started to, to write? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when I started to write. Music. And what sparked the interest in writing your own music? I was in a wedding band for a while after that and also singing jingles. And, and um, I had a boyfriend who was a really great drummer in the wedding band. And he also was in a bunch of different bands in Boston. Like that, this is when the indie uh, rock scene was really, really uh, thriving. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy that kind of encouraged me. You know, he's like, okay, you can sing other people's songs and that's fine, but this is not what you want to do, right? And I was like, no, I definitely do not want to be a wedding singer for the rest of my life. <laughs> sure. And so he's like, well, 
why don't you pick up the guitar and write a song and challenge yourself? You know, you know, three chords, right? Yeah, I know three chords. Okay. Well, why don't you just write a song with three chords and see what you come up with? And that's kind of how it started. I, I wrote a terrible song. I can't remember what it was called. It's called So or something. Um, and it wasn't very good, but it got my, it got me thinking about, you know, how I want to express myself in music and definitely, you know, with classical music, I was always regurgitating stuff that was already written. Um, and with, you know, singing pop tunes at weddings, that was, you know, not going to be the path. Um, so I started writing these songs and the crazy part though, was that within a couple of years, I had already, I'd written mother, mother, mm-hmm. just in that, those first couple of years of writing. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah. So it was kind of like an overnight, like, whoa, now I'm a songwriter. And, and that led to a lot of, of pressure. Cause I didn't really have like a back catalog. I didn't have experience as a songwriter, you know, mm-hmm. but you put out an EP prior to that debut record. And that still kind of had some, I mean, you won what best single from, from the Boston Phoenix. I mean, so you had some validation that you were a pretty good songwriter, right? Prior to mother, mother. I have a secret about that. Uh Oh yeah, I know. Um, back in those days, it was early nineties. It wasn't cool, considered cool to just come right out of the box with a hit song and like jam it down people's throats with like major label. You know, it was cooler to have a backstory. It was cool Uh to be like, yeah, you know, having these EPs before your major release. So my record label, Island Records, subsidized and and put out like, you know, it it was a real EP, but it was a fake indie. So they got an indie label called Cherry Disc, but it was funded by Island Records. It was all like a ploy to make it look as though I had some kind of history. Wow. Wow. And I don't know why, but that's why I called it the Liverpool Sessions, because it was some kind of inside joke about like, oh, yeah, I've done all this stuff. And, you know, like, like, oh, I went to. Yeah, <laughs> I was in the Abbey Road Studios and I was super inspired. <laughs> so I came home and wrote the Liverpool yeah, Sessions. Exactly. And I've been around forever. And, you know, it was not not true at all. And I don't even know if it really helped or worked, but it was cool. It was a cool like it's a rarity now. And, and that's fun to have a rarity. Sure. So, so, okay. With mother, mother though. So was that really the first thing you presented to people? And then how did like the, how did Island records find this song and and how did you get, you know, your career started that way? Yeah. Well, I, I put together this demo tape, like back when I had an eight track cassette recorder and I put together three songs and one of them was mother, mother. Another was a song called Dandelion, which I think is the one that got the best single on the um, original EP on Liverpool Sessions. And then, oh, and then another song called The One, mm-hmm. which is on the Burdens of Being Upright. And it was just, I still have the demo tape somewhere and it's great. It has handmade um, cassette, like, what is it called? A J card? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, I put like stickers and handwriting and that circulated in the Boston scene. And I barely had a band together and all of a sudden I'm getting these gigs and then that tape that, uh, circulated and I won some kind of award in the Boston Phoenix newspaper. And then literally it was like overnight, I was getting all of these calls from um, record labels. And then I immediately got a publicist and then everybody from New York was just flying up to wine and dine me. And I had like a three song demo and it was 
it was amazing and exciting. I was going to say, that must have been exciting. Validating for your, for your, you know, all the hard work you'd put into it. And then now you're writing songs and yeah. all people are interested. I yeah. mean, wow, what a big moment. Yeah, it was really, really cool. And then, but there's so many artists that will have that moment. And then the single doesn't do anything. Right. Let alone your single does so well, goes gold. You get Grammy nominated, like two Grammy nominations on the same song. I mean, mm-hmm. how overwhelming was that? It was amazing. I mean, God, it was it was a lot of work and, and I was overwhelmed quite a bit. Like, you know, they don't, they just start. It's like, you just have no time for yourself anymore. And mm-hmm. uh, you're constantly on a tour bus or you're flying somewhere to play a gig. And, you know, 10 months into a year later, you're still doing it. And I remember kind of freaking out and, now I regret it, but I had to cancel some tours because I was literally going out of my mind and I canceled South America and everyone's like, oh, don't worry, you'll get back. And I never did. Um, and then when the Grammys came, I mean, that was incredible. When I got the phone call, I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is crazy. The, the funny dichotomy of these moments are like, when I got that phone call, I was sitting in my pajamas eating cornflakes. <laughs> or like when my manager called and said like, congratulations, your first week of sales. I can't remember now. It was, it was a lot for the day and it was, uh-huh. it was monumental for these days, but like 20,000 in one week or something. And I was like, again, wow. my in Watertown, yeah. Massachusetts. But um, the Grammys was, it was odd. It was really weird. I was so nervous. I went to um, the early red carpet thing and I was hanging out and I heard them practicing on stage and Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach were the two announcers that announced my category for wow best female vocal and I was listening to them do their sound check and they they went through the whole thing and they announced and then the winner is and then they said my name in sound check so I was like holy shit oh my god I won so I was like really nervous, n- nervous, nervous, but excited. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get up there. What am I going to say? And, you know, what, how do I look? And we go through the whole evening and I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, behind Aretha Franklin and, uh, you know, there's Diana Ross and stuff. And I'm sitting there waiting and my category comes up and I'm, my heart's pounding. <clears throat> and then they announce it and it's not me. It's Cheryl Crow. Mm-hmm. And it was so weird because all of the blood just rushed up to my head. I kind of felt relieved, but then I also felt the biggest headache I've ever felt. It was like my heart was pounding in my head because of all of this pent up nervous energy. And all of, and then all of a sudden it was like, boom, you know? So it, I was like, what? <laughs> um, the rest of the night was interesting. I got to meet my hero, Stevie Wonder, and I cried wow. all over him. Um, but at night when I went to bed and when it was quiet, you know, like in this weird dichotomy of when you're kind of famous or about to be famous and then all of a sudden you're you're now you're in your hotel room and it's quiet I I did have this feeling I was like it's over <laughs> and I really? know it's really sad but I was like that's it that was my that you was- felt defeated just uh, yeah. just from the one but because yeah. you're on that stage so to speak you know the highest level of people are striving for and then Right. It doesn't happen. And you definitely yeah. got your hopes up. It's like, oh my gosh, Elvis Costello said my name. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. <sighs> yeah what it. I knew that the industry was already 
changing. I had already seen a lot of shifts and things that were not looking good mm-hmm. in the music gen- in general and also at my label. And so I knew that if I hadn't, since I hadn't gotten the, um, the award, I knew all of their attention would, would turn to someone else. Would I just shift. knew how the nature of that business is. Sure, sure. And was that like, once you came up to your second record, was it even harder to kind of, were you still kind of in that funk of the, of the Grammy thing? I mean, I don't know. Like, I would think that like, okay, the, the attention shifting now I got to go try to prove myself again. That must've been a ton of pressure. Well, it was that combined with um, every, like, the, there were mergers like these corporate mergers and so then my label just changed the whole face of the label changed all of the people I knew and trusted had left and now all these guys coming in with cigars and I don't hear a hit and uh right right or Cohen comes in from Def Jam and now we're like Island Def Jam and I was in that funk but I was trying to still kind of write a good album and mm-hmm. it it was so delayed that album the second album was so delayed it was four years later and so that in itself with such a fickle um business and i had you know for me my problem and also blessing was that i had a radio hit but i didn't have the moment like the um steady momentum mm-hmm. of just um consistency i didn't have consistency so four years later my fans were already on to something else. And then unfortunately, four years later, the, what was on the out, um, what was on the radio was Limp Biscuit. Sure. Corn, um, you know, Slipknot, whatever, all of these <laughs> bands. Yeah, that- it cha- like it was the next phase of what became like alternative, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. And there was a real pendulum swing back from like women, you know, the age of Will Fair to like door slam now it's like you know jugga, 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 angry you know, <laughs> monster rock whatever <laughs> sure <laughs> <laughs> but and during that time though you were kind of working with what the the BEP but you I mean you were doing blue man group like tell me about that you even like what's this this tie to Aerosmith I'd love to hear about that oh wow you you go deep um <laughs> yeah so that so I sent, uh, released my second album and then that, you know, we toured a lot, but it just didn't do, it didn't do what we hoped. And so then I started to kind of come to terms with like, okay, what's really happening here and, and what's important to me. So I wanted to, I wanted to make people happy and not bitch about the music business in my songs anymore. And I, I really was doing that a lot. A lot of my songs on the second album were like, my manager doesn't get me. <laughs> and music business wants to make me look like a whore, you know, whatever. So, uh, sure. so I decided to change, uh, you know, my kind of my whole perspective of what I was doing. September 11th happened. Um, I got dropped from Island Records. I, <laughs> I got a, a divorce. Um, so things were just different. But then certain things would fall into my lap, like oh, an opportunity to sing with Aerosmith on their album um, "Honking on Bobo." And so I went into the studio and and sang with them. We have a little connection because of Boston. Oh, oh sure. Yeah, and uh, they asked me to open for them on their Mamakin. Um, they had the rock club that they opened on Lansdowne Street called Mamakin. Uh huh. And they asked me to be the opening band for that. So we had wow. a little relationship and they're nice guys. Steven Tyler's. Yeah. 
Nice. I love that performance they did where they played like on their old like apartment complex. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen that show? Like, yeah, I think they played like on the roof of it. It was some crazy like free thing they did. I was like, that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're they're funny. They're just funny guys, you know, but uh, meant well. I mean, we were sitting around. I remember this one moment where we were done recording. And <laughs> they're like little boys they you know they're like little boys who live in a tour bus and so they had all this fart humor they were they had a little sample keyboard you know like one of those really cheap casio oh yeah you know what i mean the fart sound and we sat around for like 45 minutes laughing hysterically at the fart sounds on the <laughs> casio. you know that's funny it. that is so funny yeah. And that well, with that BEP, I mean, from what I read, you were only hoping to sell what a few hundred copies of the thing, and it goes to twelve thousand. Or yeah, yeah. Well, that was the from the help of Blue Man Group. So when I went on tour with them as their um, featured singer and violinist, uh, you know, at that time it was two thousand three now, and I didn't have management, I didn't have a label, and I didn't have anything, no, you know, promotion or anything. So they basically took me under their wing and they're amazing, generous people. They put me on their tour bus. They even paid for my band, my trio to be on their tour bus. So, so like, we're taking up space in the tour bus. We're eating their food. They put us up in hotels. Each of us had our own hotel room. And sometimes that wow. was seasons. Like it, they really, and then they, they had me open, like do an opening set for the big crazy rock concert, which did not even like musically mesh, but I wasn't gonna say anything. I'm <laughs> like, cool. Sure. <laughs> I played in these arenas and they let me sell at the merch table. And yeah, like I, people go out and I'd meet people and I'd, I sold like, yeah, like I made like $90,000 or something on my own without having to pay any commission. Uh -huh. And that funded my next album. So those are the lucky breaks, you know. Yeah, and did that fund that funded the B album or Blink the Brightest? That funded Blink the Brightest. Okay, and yeah. well, then didn't you get another label opportunity there? Ah, uh, yeah. Then I, after Blink was finished and recorded, then I spoke to the people at Rounder Records. Okay. And they, um, yeah, they they put that album out. Yeah. Wow. And then after with that record, I mean. I'm reading like some of the highlights you you got to play on the Jay Leno and then like Craig Ferguson. Were those the first times you had a chance to do that? Or were you able to play on like late shows once you had, when Mother Mother came out back, you know, on the first record? Yeah, I had some opportunities. I played Mother Mother on the Conan O'Brien show. The, um, and then they had these other shows back then, like, oh, the Roseanne, Roseanne Barr had a show. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> wild um and you know that what 120 minutes mtv lots of stuff oh like yeah um but then yeah the jay leno thing and the craig ferguson thing came with blink yeah got it got it and then what like what would you say like you know a handful of years later five years later massive manhattan come out like what would you say like the highlight moment or like what was the big takeaway from that record well um I still love, I do love the Jay Leno performance of, of um, my single from that album. It's called Big Red Heart. And I got together this band that I just, I still have the video somewhere. It's hard to find on the internet, um, but it's, you know, the band was like such a killer band. And I had these like percussion guys and the set was amazing. And I, I just felt like that was like a really great time and great performance. And um, I got to tour, you know, and, and 
some of the countries that were still holding a flame for me, one of them was Holland. And um, so I would get to, you know, travel over there and still play around um, in Europe, but especially Holland. So, you know, but again, the landscape, everything's different, like completely different. And, you know, it like, you have to have humility. It's like, this is not 96. This is not 2000, right. this is not, you know, like, okay, here we are again. And, and you have to really dig deep and, and ask yourself why you're doing this. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the lessons that I was learning during that time. Sure. And I'm sure you're still, I mean, as this industry progresses and streaming now and everything else, you kind of have to really adapt, right? I mean, to, to everything that's kind of moving forward. Oh, you have to, as in any creative person, right? You just have to. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk to you because I am a huge Beatles fan. Um, I, I grew up on the Beatles. My sister's name is Abby off of, nice. because my dad was, you know, huge into the Beatles. Awesome. You get to play Paul McCartney's 70th birthday party and you play a record in entirety. Didn't you play, you played the Ram album like fully through? Fully through. And like, what made you decide on that album? And like, that, <laughs> I just think that's so fascinating. Wow. I cannot take credit that so there's an artist um from denmark named tim christensen uh -huh. and he's a super famous super famous and amazing songwriter um and he had a band called the damn crystals and he had been a fan of mine and somehow he found me through a, a, a mutual friend and our mutual friend is mike viola who's an exceptional songwriter and artist. I know the name Mike Viola. Oh, yeah, I, yeah okay. I mean, wow, he's incredible. He's so talented. And they all being Beatles heads, and I'm a Beatle head, like it just all the stars aligned. Tim Christensen had the idea of doing the Ram album live. So he flew Mike and I over to Denmark, and we all rehearsed for about four days. And I was like in heaven because these guys in his band and he were like in Mike. Um, every single guitar tone they were like oh i think he had it up to three and a half and the eq is this <laughs> so i was oh you were trying to like mimic kind of what mccartney did on the record i think everything but the vocals like there's it's impossible to really you know kind of recreate and why would you we're all our own you know sure but every other thing like drum parts tones tuning the snare guitar um most of the instrumental stuff was note for note. And I got to get really excited. I mean, I got to get really into it where <laughs> I was basically singing the harmonies of Linda McCartney. Wow. Oh yeah. Cause that was a record he did with Linda McCartney. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to go sharp because you know, I don't know if you know this, but like there's some tapes going around of just her singing for a while. There was, <laughs> she's really Oh, like, and it wasn't uh, really <laughs> pre auto tune days. Pre, pre, pre <laughs> It's got a thing, you know, I would want sure. to it, but I had a blast like going slightly sharp on that note, you know, hoping someone would notice that I, like I did my diligence, like really, very, really study exactly what she was doing. I love that. Yeah, it's fun. That is so cool. Um, as we kind of continue down your, your journey here, Wax and Gold was a record you put out in uh, 2015, I believe. Uh, what, again, what was uh, the big kind of takeaway from that record? Well, let's see. Now I was completely on my, my own. I think I had put you know, it out on a Woody Hollow uh, Records, which is just basically my own little record label. Um, 
and I did a pledge music campaign for it. Um, I had just become a mother. So the album before it, Mast in Manhattan, was all about waiting to adopt our child. Okay. Songs about like, Angel, won't you come down? And like, what's it going to be like when we become uh, parents? And, and then Wax and Gold was basically, I'm a mom now and I have this beautiful adopted baby and he's from Ethiopia. And all of these songs were, wow, it's such a different album for me. Um, they were about family and the tapestry of family. Like since we have this child who's from Ethiopia and I'm from Oregon and my husband's from California, like how does this even work? Uh-huh. I was really trying to kind of um, just simplify and think about like songs about family. And the album's really simple. I have one song in there that's like two chords and I'd never done that before. I always like would shudder like, oh, it's gotta be complicated or it's gotta be a left turn, it's gotta be quirky. Um, but these were songs of like real minimal um, cleverness. Okay. And there's some songs that I absolutely like love. And then there's, I mean, as a whole, I think it's just a real like straight down the middle album and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm really proud of it. And I think it sounds great. Kevin Salem um, played and produced and mixed uh, it and it just sounds gorgeous. That's amazing. And then with what's would you say that that kind of like because now you're you're kind of full circle in the moment of like your mom was a, a music teacher and now you're you you kind of started like a music school, right? I mean, well, with modern burdens, that was more reimagined songs. Or could, tell me about that one a little bit, real quick. So a lot of bands, when they have like a 20 year anniversary of their hit album and right. they don't own their master recordings, which I didn't. So Island Records owns the master recordings forever and ever and ever. I've tried to get them back. They're like, no. So like a Taylor Swift deal. <laughs> well, something like that, but I'm not Taylor Swift. I don't have like the, you know, the guns, but um, uh, I decided instead of what most bands do, they do a, like a sound alike, like a re-record to do a switcheroo. Like if you get a licensing opportunity, you just hand them the one that you own. So that sure. You well, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It's your song, right? Great business idea. And I'm the worst business person in the world. So I decided well, that album already exists. Why? You know? So I decided to change it up and, and do a reimagining. And this is during 2016 when we all thought we were going to have the next female president. And then, oh, yeah. Um, sure changed and I decided to open it up to like let's make it a girl power girl power album and invited some of my favorite singers uh to join me and it felt kind of like a tribute album except I'm not dead like like (laughs) hey hey, celebrate me it was really fun and and the all the the women that I had singing on them were like on the songs were really amazing and, and positive and it became a really fun experience that's so cool. That's so cool. And it was just, you just grabbed some of your favorite singers and said, Hey, or some of your favorite people and just yeah. put them all on the record. Yeah, totally. That's beautiful. Um, okay. Well, I'm curious to where, to see where you kind of were in like mid to, I mean, end of 2019, right. You know, obviously this pandemic hits the world changes up for everybody. Did you already have your music house going at this point or was this something that started due to everything else that kind of happened. Okay. I did have it started. Um, I had already started teaching. Um, when I got off the road with Blue Man Group, I, I wanted to 
you know, give back. And I love music theory so much. And I love kids. So I started mm -hmm. teaching kids and I realized that there wasn't like inspiring educational content out there. I had been on the road and talked to so many fans. They'd come up to me and say, I would have studied music, but my teacher was mean or they were boring or I got scared or discouraged. And so that would always had always been in my brain and I wanted to create content while I taught mm -hmm. that would help kids and all ages um, feel empowered, feel like they can go out on stage and, you know, express themselves. And I have a real passion for like helping performers, like really dig deep and, you know, find their fire. And then I love music theory. So I combined all these songs while I was teaching and they started dropping from the sky. You know, they say like, write what you know. And I was like, well, I know music. And so I'm writing songs about music. Um, I'm trying to coin this phrase. It's music that teaches music. I like that. Yeah. And it's like, ah, oh, this is like schoolhouse rock, but it's not about uh, verbs or grammar or politics. It's about music theory. Oops, there goes my little light. Um, so I... I started these songs. I had a big collection of them, but I didn't know when to put them out because mm -hmm. there's always some other Tracy Bonham thing to do. Um, so they just sat and they sat and they sat and they were almost pretty much mixed and done. And so when COVID hit and I had been touring and I've been touring with this amazing um, jazz bassist named Renee Hart mm -hmm. and he and I um, started talking about what to do after this tour because it was like March... 15th, 2020, oh. and we're on the flight, the empty flight home. Wow. Um, How bizarre was that? Like, because at this point, like, the virus was a thing, right? I mean, people are, there's chatter about it. Well, you were on tour prior, like, you were coming home from a tour? Yeah, home from, but we had started the tour March 6th, so it was already a thing, and we were like, I don't know if we should do it. I don't know. Oh. And my booking agent would be like, you're still selling tickets. And we were like, I don't know. And I, it was really conflicting because I didn't want to leave my son. Uh, you know, we we're in Brooklyn and I was like, what if I'm gone? And what if I can't get home? And what if mm -hmm. he's not safe? It was, it was one of the hardest decisions, even up till the night before we left on the flight on March 6th, I was like, I'm not sure if we should go. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I reached out on Instagram and stuff and I, I talked to fans. It was the first time I'd ever done this where I'm like, I need help people, you know? And mm -hmm. My fans, especially some moms who are like rock moms and stuff, they're like, you got to do it. <laughs> so I did it. And yeah, we were coming home and, and you know, COVID was in our you know, rear view mirror like the whole time. And we were closing down venues. We were the last people to play at Hotel Cafe in LA. We were the last wow. people to play here, here, here. We had amazing shows though. Like these people who came out were like diehards and it was such a beautiful experience. So and you didn't see like, I guess my question would be, did you, cause it was a thing in the sense of like people knew it was happening. Yeah. And did you have like a night where, okay, it's a sellout or we were expecting yeah. X amount of people to show up and only a third or half. Right. Because yeah. people were worried. Like, was that happening yet? For sure. Like, well, it started off with a bang. I mean, Seattle was great. It was low. We were expecting to do like way more, but it still was good. And then mm -hmm. Portland was sold out. That was amazing. But then it was like, oh, my hometown, Eugene, numbers start to, now this is like March 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 
Uh, then, you know, then it started to get really weird because now things, I mean, it happened so rapidly, at, at least in our minds, because we were not in the know, right? Sure. Um, March 10th, 11th, 12th shows were like on the brink, like, should we cancel? No, let's just do it. And we had a, a really small audience in um, Santa Rosa. But okay. and then by LA, our opening band had canceled because they were COVID really scared. They had some, uh, I guess somebody had an immunity, like a health thing. Issue or something. Yeah. So it was just like, we're just going, we're just going to do this and we're here and we might as well play and, and we played our best. So it was, it was sad. And, and by the end, LA's show was just like, you know, we weren't touching anything. We had like Clorox wipes and, and um, whatever, you know, hand sanitizer and, mm -hmm. and like, you know, it was hard. I want to socialize. I have family in the audience. And it was like so confusing to know how, what to do. And, and we're really lucky. Like I didn't get sick. I think Renee did get sick, but I don't know if, if it was because of the show or the airport or what, but, um, you know, and luckily he's okay, but like, I got very lucky. And, and mm -hmm. so anyway, on the, on the flight home, it was like, okay, well, we're not going to be touring for a while. This is mm -hmm. a real deal. And as much as I wanted to record the new songs I was debuting on these for these shows, I was like, you know what? I've got a whole album plus in the can of like all of these Schoolhouse Rocky kids music theory songs. Mm -hmm. I just want to put this album out. And okay. Then I to kind of create more of the visual, like Schoolhouse Rock is very visual. Sure. So these songs are cool, but they need more. They need the visual. So um, that's when we started to do like more of a, more than just an album. Okay. And is that what the Young My Shows volume one will be? Is that those songs? Yeah, it'll be 11 songs, um, volume one, because there's more. There's like, you know, I'm really hitting my stride with, with um, this material. Uh, yeah, those will be those songs. And then what we're trying to do right now is get the visual aspects and the, the videos. And, you know, I'm teaching classes uh, with my private uh, schools now on Zoom and stuff, but eventually I want to kind of build that and I want to teach and kind of create this curriculum that's for more than that. Maybe schools want to license it. Maybe there's going to be uh, opportunities for more. I love that. And with, with, um, with the record, are they all songs catered to two children and kind of in that teaching realm or like, were they just songs that you had written and were like, yeah, let's, let's, you know, put them out and kind of put a new spin on them. I, I, I explain to me what's what's the feel and the vibe of the record. Okay, well, you know, it. it I do feel like it's it's an all ages thing. Uh, it, you know, it is for the young at heart. Um, so, you know, uh, it can be for. You know, I call it the young music enthusiasts. That's my new favorite. Like. That would be my demographic, the young music enthusiasts, but that mm -hmm. can be of all ages. Like there's songs that teach you how to play a song. It, like it actually has instructions on the fingerings on how to play the black keys of the piano. Oh, wow. Anyone, and it's a beautiful song. It's a timeless melody. It's called All the Blackbirds. And it's a timeless melody. I almost thought like, okay, wait, I'm ripping this off maybe, but <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It has very familiar uh, sounds to it. It's written all, all the black keys of the piano, which is, for those musoids out there, it's like a pentatonic scale. Mm -hmm. And you just you just go by the fingerings, four, five, three, two, one, four, five, three. And you're learning how to play the song. So any age can do that. Like you could be 80 and want to learn how to play a song on the piano. 
or you could be three. Right. <laughs> it does kind of, it's hard to actually target, right? But um, we're kind of going for like this kids genre thing, which is new to me. And, you know, it's not really like I want to go out and play birthday parties. I hate to say it, but. <laughs> right. Right. I do want. But you can play matinee shows. You know, that's what I, that's my dream is like matinee shows and then a Tracy Bonham thing at night. That would be. Oh, like, that would be rad. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's. You know, some people like my friend Lisa Loeb is doing that. She's doing like both kids and growing up music. Yeah, she, she she's put out a handful of, of children's records. Yeah. I've actually interviewed quite a few um, people in the, in the children's music yeah. genre, which I always find fascinating because a lot of them come from, you know, night rock clubs and, and, and doing the grind and the tour. And they're like, I love this. I play at noon on a Saturday, like, you know, <laughs> and everybody's super into it and they want to dance and they want to have fun. There's that too. Like I have to say, um, I think more so in the classroom, I, I'm not sure about stage and audience yet, but in the classroom, what I see with their like letting go of inhibitions or they don't even have inhibitions yet. Some of them like, and for me, I get to be goofy and I don't mm. have to be cool. Like this is way more fun. I had one moment where I, I had a four-year-old singing at the top of his lungs, one of my songs, and he looked like he was enraptured. And I was like, this is better than any stadium hockey arena show I've played ever in my life. Wow. I see this one four-year-old who's like impassioned. I'm like, this is where it's at. I love that. That's amazing. And then with with uh, with it, it's it's music that teaches kids music. I love that tagline. Yeah. Um, and is it specific instruments? I mean, you're talking about the piano and the black keys, or is it uh, is it you can learn kind of anything? Or where's the focus lie? Well, I'll just get out my Albert here and I'll just look look at the titles. Um, well, the <laughs> song does teach you how to play the piano in that song. The other songs are not geared towards playing a specific instrument. In fact, there's one song, the first song on the album, it's called Me Symphony. And it's about forgetting all your instruments and learning that you can make music without an instrument. Like the, the whole setup is like, I lost my tuba in Aruba. I lost my piano <laughs> in Indiana. <but laughs> I love it. it. You know, I had to use my hand, my body and my, to make music. And, and basically the message there is like, you don't have to have everything just perfect. You can just go out and wing it. Mm -hmm. You are your own instrument you know, it's empowerment, um, all rolled into one. And then any of the, <laughs> I do have a song called, I like big beats, <laughs> which is a takeoff of a song by Sir Mix-a-Lot. Sure. Uh <laughs> so it does teach the drums a little, so I'm gonna do a little something for you. It goes, I like big beats and I cannot hide all the pleasure that I get inside from hearing that big bass drum, the one that goes like boom, boom. And it goes through the, bass drum, the snare, the hi-hat. Oh, wow. So that's fun. That is so cool. Cause I just, um, in the beginning of the pandemic, um, my young son has autism, he's four and he's just like, it's hyper-focused on things. And like, I didn't want him to get, he was get, kind of getting hyper-focused on the iPad and, and the Nintendo. And I'm like, but he likes, you know, banging on stuff. So we got him an electric drum kick. Cause I'm like, I don't want the neighbors to go nuts. Yeah. So he and I've been trying to teach him. I'm not a a drummer by any means, but it's something that I always find fascinating, and I I love that. Like it teaches kind of the kids, like oh, here's the what the kick sounds like, the snare, the you know, 
Yeah. And I've been trying to figure out a way, safe way to give them some sort of drum lessons, oh. so to speak, because it's hard when the you're doing it over Zoom, you try to do it over Zoom when they can't, you can't play along because of latency issues. And it's like, oh, the sound through the computer of the drums. Yeah, I bet that's really hard. Yeah, so. Well, I'm going to send you an album and then he can learn. I mean, if it's because it's really basic. So it's just bass drum, snare drum, tom toms and hi hat. I love that. You know? Well, thank you so much. That would be great. I would lo- that would be so, so special. Thank you so much. Welcome. And thank you so much, Tracy, for talking with me for 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 this amount of time. I really, really appreciate it. This has been so much fun. Um, I, you have such an incredible story. I do have one more question. I want to know, do you have any advice for aspiring artists? Yes, I do. Um, I have the advice of, uh, do it for the right reason (laughs) because, um, don't do it for fame. Don't do it for money. Do it because you love it. Um, you know, there may be opportunities for immediate stardom, YouTube, whatever it is, social media and stuff. But if you don't have your heart in the right place and if you're just doing it because you want like accolades or people liking you or smashing that subscribe button, then it's going to become empty really quickly. So I would say dig deep into why you are doing something kind of like that Renee Rilke letters to a young poet or whatever. It's like, if you feel that you would not survive not doing your art, then <laughs> that's a little drastic, but do it because.